Hello, and uh, welcome to this podcast from uh, Two Peds in a Pod. Uh, I'm your host, Ian Lewins. And I'm very pleased to be joined this evening uh, by Jesse McCulloch, who's a health visitor, a children's nurse, and most importantly, a lead practice educator with the Me First project. Good evening, Jesse. How are you? Good evening. Very well. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's a real pleasure to speak to you. Um, so, well, let's dive straight into it then. Um, you're, you're sort of one of the lead people with the, the Me First project. Uh, can you tell us, sort of in a nutshell, what, what is Me First? So it's a project which um, is really around an education and training resource for healthcare professionals. So it started about five years ago, really focusing on the experiences of children and young people in hospital and what can be done in terms of communication to improve that experience. Um, So we offer a website, Twitter chats and different training days, really focusing on some of those conversations that clinicians will be having in practice and what we can do to improve that. Okay. And how did you sort of get involved in this? So I heard about the project probably about three or four years ago. Um, I was a DARSI fellow at the time and working on workforce issues for nursing students in children's areas. And I was aware that it was something that was coming up a lot from my role as a children's nurse lecturer and in my experience of delivering care as well, that often we had conversations with parents and the children were often not involved in those conversations and perhaps were becoming slightly disengaged. And it really felt like an opportunity to start to change that relationship and think more about what children and young people were needing. And is, is, I mean, is, as you say, is, is that something that in your clinical experience something that you recognized and wanted to kind of get involved in yeah I I guess um for me as a health visitor I was often working with very young children but I'd always felt it was important even with two three four year olds to talk to them about what was going to happen um and ensure they understood you know even if it was giving an injection or taking their weight in a really simple way what that meant and um from a personal level in different areas that I was involved in I, I could see teenagers were sometimes not involved in those conversations and were not wanting to speak to medical staff or not going to appointments regularly and that this was having an impact on their health and um, yeah what could we do differently and is it, i mean I, I, I know the answer i suspect but i mean is this sort of something that's that's recognized nationally globally that, that, that children and young people are often excluded from these conversations I think from a national perspective, um, this was part of how the project originated as well. It was when the CQC started with the um, National Inpatient Surveys, and it was back in 2014 when it was showed that over half of children and young people were saying they weren't involved in conversations about their care. They didn't always understand what was going to happen next. Um, they, they Most of them said it really positively about feeling that they were, cal- were well cared for but not necessarily the, the full picture or feeling included. And certainly from an um, international perspective, that's reflected in the uh, literature in many, many different countries um, and often specific clinical specialities. So the, um, there's various research being done on children with cancer and their experiences of care or, or long-term conditions like diabetes as well. There's quite a lot of research into those areas nas- internationally. Um, oh, and, oh, 
uh, so Health Education England said, what is it we can do um, to start to address this? And this was where it came that a training course could be a way of managing that from a workforce perspective. It was going to be interprofessional, so it wasn't a specific group of clinicians that were targeted. It was trying to use that opportunity for people to learn from one another about what they were doing and what they might want to change. Yeah, and certainly, you know, from, from my perspective in dealings with the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, this is something that's been sort of noticeably driven over the last few years and things, you know, that there's nothing about me without me and, and, you know, trying to actually refocus people on, you know, your patients and, and often we deal with the parents and, and sometimes miss the patient, don't we? Yeah, I think there is that real risk. And often, you know, you've got a parent coming with so many concerns and issues that it's really important to address. And I think uh, some people, especially with the name me first, see it as it's somehow excluding the parent. Um, but actually, that conversation needs to be including everybody, all the caregivers, and ensuring that that communication is, is not necessarily even between the, the clinician, the parent, the child it's also thinking about the wider network of people involved in that care and how are we facilitating that choice and decision making so that people feel more empowered to manage their care as they go into adulthood so if we sort of think about the the the, the resources and, and me first i mean the first thing to say is how do in your experience how do people access these resources so i'd say probably the biggest um access for the project has been our website and that's been growing and growing year after year um, we have uh, sometimes over 2,000 hits a month of we have gathered resources from all over the country and some are international as well of different tools or videos or information that we think are really useful for having conversations with children and young people so we've got all sorts of topics on there it can be around um a series of questions to think about um, before they come into an appointment. It can be a, um, some visual aids about having a blood test. It can be a short video about what happens when you have an MRI. Um, and there's lots and lots of different things, and some of them they can be um, printed out from the website and used in your area. Or we, some of them we're really low-fi or low-tech rather. Um, it's just some little scribbled images that people can use as a sort of sorting technique which can sometimes help particularly if say a child or young person isn't particularly uh, talking that much okay and, and that website is uh, mefirst.org.uk is that that's right that's right yeah okay um and i mean what are, what what do you feel are the sort of core principles behind this i mean there, there you say there were the resources there what, what would you have as your core principles in this I think fundamentally it goes back to the UN Conventions of the Rights of the Child and it's about that child having access to information I think is part of it and having their voice being heard um, and I think we as a country we really believe in that but sometimes things can't get in the way. We are very time pressured in a clinical environment, we've got other people's concerns that need to address, need to be addressed. We've got a checklist of things that we're thinking about that we want to cover when we're mm -hmm. talking to a, a child and their family. And sometimes the, the, those extra bits are considered forgettable or we can leave those to somebody else at another time. But actually that those bits are, are really fundamental to if we 
are demonstrating that compassion, that empathy, that listening, we are seeing that person in a much more holistic um, human way and much more likely to get to know them as an individual. Yeah. And, and I mean, are there particular sort of groups of, of patients and children and young people that, that uh, present particular particular challenges in your experience? Oh, definitely. I'd say that there are so many different aspects and, and that I've experienced personally as a children's nurse, as, as a health visitor, um, but also what people have brought to us through the training that we deliver. So I think the, the topics of conversation often people are really nervous about are around going into adolescence and transition and talking about things like sexual health um, or drug taking lots of people find it really uncomfortable talking about weight issues and how yeah. do you open up that conversation because weight is such a, a stigmatized subject and people feel very strongly about it or, or stigmatized about being overweight that actually how do you open up that conversation um, I think another one would be around um, when you've got that kind of hunch that something's not right uh, that, that there may be a risk to that child. I certainly came across it working in sexual health clinics and seeing um, teenagers and young adults coming in where you weren't sure what had been the background to bringing them in, but you felt that something wasn't quite right. And how do you have that conversation to help them feel safe and ensure they're getting the right kind of support? And I think mm. that can apply as well to some conversations about mental health and well-being too. Yeah, and I think certainly from my experience, it's you know, um, as, as a paediatrician of twenty years, it's it's often the teenagers that I find the, the, the trickiest to talk to. Um, but actually, I think from a, a emergency perspective, often people coming into doing paediatrics for the first time find, I would say, even the the, the younger children actually far more challenging. The, the three year olds, four year olds, if they haven't sort of got kids of their own or experienced that, actually they find talking to them very challenging it's it's that trying to find something in common part i think uh, or something that is sufficiently distracting and i know you know children can be the hardest audience hardest audiences sometimes um and can be very blunt with you very critical i know um i was talking to a young person she, she was 80 the other week and she just went yeah that's a really nice story and you're just like oh um, but they are—they can bring so much fun to a situation, and I think that's what I love about working with children and young people. That you—you you get to be more creative. You get to play different roles in how you communicate with them, and that isn't necessarily easy at first. And I'd say, especially for people that may not have had not especially for people that may not have had that much experience. Uh, mm. Watching TV shows is a great way of, of coming up with characters or lingo that they'll be familiar with. Yeah, and it's sort of one thing that I'd always encourage my medical students who've often got very little experience with children is just go and watch CBeebies for a couple of hours and um, you'll get a great deal from that for, for your younger patients. Absolutely. And it's fun. Uh, yeah, well... Some of them are. More, some <laughs> are um, so looking on the website, um, it talks about the, the, the me first communication model. 
what what's that about so the way that we started the whole project was to undertake a literature review on what was already out there and a lot of the literature came around specifically decision making um, and how that was undertaken and what were the important things that children and young people wanted as part of the conversation. So we encompassed the literature review with a number of focus groups with children and young people from all across the country and talked to professionals as well about what they found was effective um, or the challenges that they'd had too and, and the communication model embraced all of those aspects and, and effectively became a framework for a conversation of the really key important things that wanted to be included. So it's from how you go about doing introductions to how you focus what the what the specific topic you were going to talk about in that, in that conversation was going to be, to how those decisions would be made and what, how that would be followed up in the future. And is this sort of this? I say this is mostly done online. Do you do you guys do any sort of face to face work at all? So we go out and do training um, all across the country um, to groups of clinicians and introduce the model in more depth. So we give everybody the opportunity to come up with a particular situation that they find challenging, um, mm. and then we draw on what commonalities there are with the people in the room, and we. Um, undertake a big role place situation of thinking about what could what could we would we include in that conversation what are the specific words phrases tools or activities that we might want to um, use to have a more effective conversation um, and then that gives them a chance to know what feels right or what doesn't feel right because we know when we try to do things differently it's always a little bit uncomfortable at first mm. and practicing that all the research shows that that makes it easier when it comes to facing that situation in real life so mm. one example was um uh, a clinician um was running a regular clinic where a number of children and young people were coming who were likely to face a diagnosis of a life-limiting condition and so there's a lot of resources and ideas about how to manage that aspect of the conversation. But even before that, how would you talk to that child or young person about the tests that they were going to have? How they would like to receive the um, diagnosis or the, the results of the test, as well as yeah. the, the kind of implications that that was going to have for them? So it gives you an opportunity to really break it down into very, very um, small chunks, which can be really helpful for thinking about how you manage things in a different way. Yeah, I think, I mean, for, the, for those examples, that specific example, you know, it's, it's you only really get one chance to get that right, really. Um, uh, and, you know, the particularly breaking bad news is, is something that I think a lot of, clinicians feel very concerned about and getting it right is so important it really is and I think I think we all know that there isn't going to be a perfect conversation we can do our best and that's why it's really useful to have that chance to practice or to use the model as a reflective tool to think okay what went well today was there anything I missed in this conversation that could have made it better um and and to also learn from other people, I think that's what we really find in the training is it's also hearing from other clinicians about what works for them. Because I know when I've 
been going out and trying new things. It's taken me hearing lots of different people's styles um, before I felt that something that would fit with me or that I'd feel comfortable with as well. Cool. I, mean, I think looking on the I say on the website, the other the other bit that really interested me actually um, is this, and I think again something that people found particularly challenging is is this conversations about concerns model. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? So that came about um, uh, some work with NHS England, really around uh, how we have conversations with children who are at risk of sexual exploitation. Um, and it was my co-lead, Kate Martin, that led on that, along with um, Dr. Duncan Law, who's a, um, who works with the Anna Freud Centre. Um, and so they did a lot of research um, and focus groups with young people about how we have that, those kind of conversations. And I think what's really key there is that kind of open honesty and recognising that, you know, there isn't a magic fix here. It is about how do we figure this out together and that partnership with a child or young person so that they're not feeling that you're telling them what's going to happen. It is um, particularly, I think, when children have been at risk or are very vulnerable, already so much control has been taken away from them that as a clinician you have an opportunity to help give them some control back um, in terms of what information is going to be shared and how it's going to be shared because that's the bit that I think people are really terrified about. Who's going to know about me and is everybody going to be told and what's going to happen next? Yeah. Um, and uh, these are, uh, you know, I think experientially the, these things, these conversations, these difficult conversations are so important. To play devil's advocate slightly for a minute, um, somebody might say, well, it's all very nice, but does it really make a difference? Does it really make a difference? It's really hard to, to prove very categorically what makes a difference. But we know that um, particularly around transition, for example, children, young people rather, who have been very engaged in their clin clinical care, if they change to a different team and don't feel comfortable with that team, they're far less likely to fo go to follow-up appointments. So we often see a huge deterioration of health around that transition period. And that's fundamentally about communication. Um, and, and young people, what they've told us is this really, really makes a difference. To, mm. to them, they have felt that it's been transformative when they felt that somebody has listened to them. In fact, I, I was um, teaching a group of professionals this week, and one of the things we ask people to do is think about a, a good experience of care that they've had. And one of the participants actually became very emotional, recalling uh, an occasion where she'd felt really listened to by a professional. And it had been the first time she'd ever experienced that in her life. And she said it, it wasn't about what they did or, or what they um, managed to achieve for me. It was just about having felt listened to. And I think that, that we sometimes underestimate how powerful that is. Absolutely. Um, uh, it's interesting with you sort of saying that. Is this training, obviously anybody can access the, the website, but is the training that you offer open to, to all healthcare professionals, not just sort of doctors and nurses? So, yes, we open it up to healthcare assistants, allied health. We have had um, reception staff attend some of the sessions, um, play therapists. We encourage anyone that's having conversations with children 
um, about their health or well-being to, to come along. Um, and that's dependent on which trusts invite us in. So we're happy to travel wherever. Um, depending on what the need is in that local area. So some of our work is commissioned nationally. Some of it is trust by trust basis. Some it's smaller teams. And uh, who, who, uh, who funds sort of me first and who funds your, your training? So originally we were set up and funded by Health Education England and now we're in a phase of being self-sustaining. So we keep going through our training that we deliver. Okay. So that's usually funded either by STPs or CCGs or local trusts, or as I said, NHS England have, have commissioned us to do bits of work as well. Okay. So if I have a health professional who's sort of listening to this podcast and thinks, actually, that's something that we perceive as a, as a you know, something that we could do with locally, but we don't really have that training. What would you recommend as sort of the next step of getting started? do get in touch with us. So we do offer some open access training. So for individuals that want to come along, we offer that in London. Or if there was a, a team who would really like us to come out to them, we could talk about what some of the funding streams that might be available to them locally that we could tap into, um, whether it's a local charity or whether the STP might be able to uh, align it with some of their their strategies locally. Um, so do get in touch and it's info at mefirst.org.uk. Okay. And, and I guess, you know, as we said, said the, the, the website's a, is a great place to start as well, just to sort of see what's available. Absolutely. There's lots of different things that people can have a look at and get an idea about. And we're trying to add to that all the time. So if anyone's got any good ideas, do send them our way because we'd love to include them. Absolutely. Uh, and I guess my final question then is, is given where the project's at at the moment, what, what's, what's for the future for, for me first? It's, it's a very interesting time and it's hard to know exactly what will come next. I think it's tricky because we recognise that, you know, CPD funding is limited in a lot of areas. Um, and are there opportunities to think about how it works with specific uh, targets, for example, around urgent and emergency care or around yeah. cancer care, rather than making the, the generic training that we offer at the moment, um, whether there's more room for digital training. I think it's tricky when it's communication, but I think there is certainly a place for some of that and, and how people might be able to access that more easily. I think um, free phone ped is brilliant, and I really encourage that. But I think also when we're talking about communication and some of the tricky conversations there's such value in having that face to face but is there a way of allowing small teams to take things off our website and use that as part of their local training i don't know watch this space excellent okay i just to sort of reiterate again it's um mefirst.org.uk that's right and we also have twitter chats every two months our next one is on the 11th of september and that's going to be about challenging professionals. Okay. Uh, and what's the Twitter handle that we need to look out for there? At CYP Me First. Perfect. Jesse, that's, that's given me so much food for thought. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.